welcome to episode 402 of the Cyberlaw Podcast, brought to you by Steptoe and Johnson, where lawyers talking technology, security, privacy, and government, and the views we're going to express do not reflect those of our institutions, our friends, our family, and not even our pets, and certainly not our clients. But we're going to have a good roundup. Mark McCarthy is joining me from the Technology Law and Policy uh, I guess he teaches that at Georgetown, uh, and from Brookings Institution's Center for Technology Governance. Mark, great to have you. Glad to be here. And Nick Weaver, uh, a crowd favorite, lecturer in the computer science department at Berkeley, and a researcher at the International Computer Science Institute at UC Berkeley. Nick, great to have you back. Thank you for having me. Okay, and I'm Stuart Baker, formerly with NSA and DHS, the host and chief provocateur today. Let's start with Russian takedowns by the U.S. government or by Western governments. The U.S. government, using tools that it has only had for six or seven years, went after Cyclops Blink, which is really just... Uh, VPN filter back again to the mess with us, brought to us by the same people who brought us uh, not pets yet, if I remember right. Nick, how effective was the take? It seemed to be fairly effective at this particular botnet. So how it works is a few years ago, the Department of Justice wanted to get a change done to Rule 41, which was how do you write a warrant when the computer is either the computers in question are either in three or more districts or you don't know where they all are at the fir- in the first place. Because and the rule up to, the, up to that point was you had to go to the district where you were going to carry out the search and get a warrant for every search you were going to carry out in that district, which meant you might have to go to 50 districts if, there were, uh, if they were using machines in 50 places. Well, more than 50 districts. So when you're dealing with these large botnets, you're dealing with every district in the U.S. So prior to this, there wasn't uh, government takedowns of the botnets because taking down a botnet means you connect to a computer you don't have normal control over, execute commands to remove some piece of software. This is a seizure and this needs a warrant. And so... The change, of course, had some of the EFF types having kittens, but in the end, it's proven to be really useful. This is not the first time the DOJ and FBI have done this, and it won't be the last. And it ends up being a fairly effective way of disrupting a botnet is you take control over it and shut it down. And yes, it's an arms race and the bad guys can make this harder and harder. As long as the opportunity exists, it's a good one. Yeah. Whether they are afraid of losing this because of scandal or whether they're just being cautious about civil liberties. I noticed the FBI, they wrote a program to find out which machines were compromised, in which they collected all of the communications back to the C2. And all they got, they they set up their program so it just recovered IP addresses, if I remember right, so that they could find the machines but weren't looking at any of the content. Yes, and I think it's not uh, fear. It's just the FBI is a very disciplined organization in most cases, and this is the disciplined side of the disciplined organization. And also, really, why do a search? You don't want to do a lot of yeah, things. Yeah, third-party collection. Yeah, it's just 
an awful nightmare. You don't want to have to deal with that. The paperwork is abominable. This is what I used to say. No one would believe me when I was at NSA. I said, we don't want your communications. It just gets in the way. It clutters up all the collection that we do want. And that's your your best friend in terms of protecting civil liberties. And everybody said, oh, no, that's not the case. But uh, that's true for the FBI here. They could have collected massive amounts of information that would have been useless to them. So instead, they got the, the piece of information they really needed. The other thing is, is you can see how this impacts things in that there was actually two warrants. One in uh, EDVA, I believe, that was for the botnet and then one that was uh, Northern District of California for a control server, because when you know where the server is, you actually still have to go to the district. So you can't district shop to, to do a, a remote electronic search when you can say where it is. But yeah. if you can't say where it is, like say a darknet market, then you can still write a Rule 41 warrant to hack it. and. The, uh, the Germans, in cooperation with the U.S. as well, just took down a big darknet market. And we don't know how they found it, but they found it. This is the Hydra dark market. And it, according to the, the government, something like 86% of all Russian online crime sales proceeds went through Hydra market. That is to say, it was really the Amazon of dark markets for a time. And so taking it down and hopefully being able to track some of the transactions will be a big deal for a while. The, the real big deal will be one of the things this market included is a Bitcoin tumbling service. And so the question is... Will they be able to get the records of what came in and what went out? Well, you know the records of what came in and what came out, but be able to link yes. what came in and what came out. Uh, that will be a big deal. I, I, and if they got that, then there are going to be a lot of people who ought to be worried. We're going to talk about this later, but maybe we should talk about it now, because there was a long story in Wired about uh, how an IRS agent and a bunch of other agents managed to track a massive child uh, sexual abuse material network that was centered in South Korea, and it used Bitcoin to buy or contribute to or to, to essentially get buy yourself status inside the network so you got to download more stuff. And the people who were using that thought, well, if I use Bitcoin, it's certainly better than sending uh, my credit card number. I'll be safe. And it turned out that they didn't tumble their coins. And so the government, in fact, governments all over the world ended up with a list of people who paid a bunch of money for child porn. Yes, this was the Welcome to Video case. And Welcome to Video combined two of the things I hate the most in the universe, Tor <laughs> Hidden Services and Bitcoin. And, in and, order and, to and, do... And, and, that, and that's in service to child sexual abuse material. It's really a threefer. <laughs> yes, yes. And so Welcome to Video was notorious for being... Previous and subsequent child sexual abuse rings, the currency that they use is the content itself. That like 
you contribute new content, you get higher status and are able to download more. That alone is reprehensible. Welcome to Video added in the option to pay with Bitcoin rather than pay with creating additional content. And unfortunately, this created a market for such material to be created. Fortunately, the folks involved did not really understand cryptocurrency at the time because it really wasn't in the public notion how it traceable it is. And so this is actually a chapter preview of Greenberg's new book on the subject. He has a book coming out on Bitcoin tracing in general and like the Silk Road. And I admit I actually am a minor character in it. So oh, excellent. I have to hype the book. <laughs> <laughs> Well, congratulations. Yeah, I have to say, it, it didn't sound like it was breaking new ground, like this investigation broke a lot of new ground, but it was a, a, a dramatic indication of how much information you can get from people who are sort of naive users of Bitcoin. And also why I am a huge believer in the enforcement of money laundering laws is that Bitcoin doesn't work for normal purchases, but it did work in this case, and it would have worked better when you look at cryptocurrencies like Monero that are designed with privacy in mind. Yep. Um, and this is the natural consequence of the two technologies of anonymous uh, hidden services and anonymous payments. You get stuff like this. Yep. All right. Well, let's go uh, north of the border for a little more tech clash regulation. Mark, Canada is pursuing a law that is borrowed from Australia, and there's a lot of back and forth borrowing in those two in that particular channel uh, that would require Facebook and Google to pay for news, pay the media in Canada when they link to news stories that those bodies have, those media have produced. It's just a proposal, but, you know, the Canadian system is such that proposals that the government makes are usually adopted unless something funny happens. Is this a good idea? Well, it, it, you know, let's just, you know, take a second to you know, see what it says and then talk about whether it's a, a good idea. The, the bill you described is called the Online News Act. And you're right, it's been introduced into the House of Commons by the government. It's, it's a government-backed piece of legislation. So as you suggest, it's got a pretty good chance of becoming law eventually. Uh, and, and what it requires is to have the digital platforms make fair deals with news outlets. So the digital platforms are going to be those that have a, a bargaining imbalance with the news outlets, and and they're going to measure that by uh, a metric like the firm's global. And then those, uh, <laughs> well, but that's but that's preposterous, right? They're going to say, uh, you know, I'm I'm the biggest, uh, I'm I'm the Toronto Globe and Mail, and I have a billion dollars in revenue, and so I'm just a pipsqueak. I have no bargaining leverage with Google. So nobody has bargaining leverage with Google. This is just a way of saying we're going to decide who should get money by deciding whether they're Canadian or not. Well, maybe, but of course, the, the companies involved are supposed to be companies that are providing news in Canada. Uh, it's not companies that are providing news in Detroit or, or right. in New Jersey or Australia. So th that's their measure of global revenue. And they, in effect, assume that a company like a Google or a Facebook 
has got some bargaining power over local. And yet, if that's the case, then forcing them to sit down and have a discussion about how much they, they would pay uh, for this, you know, won't produce an out an outcome that would no, be... No, it's going to go straight to arbitration. If the regulator doesn't like the deal, then it goes to arbitration. And then the, the regulator, the regulator is the Canadian uh, Radio Television Telecommunications Commission, the uh, CRTC, and they get to, you know, look at the, uh, at the deal and say, you know, if it covers, you know, the right stuff... And it seems to be fair in the view of the regulator. And it goes, it can go forward, but otherwise it, it doesn't. Now, Google and Facebook faced this before. I mean, in Australia, and, and apparently Facebook learned something from that earlier experience. And so it hasn't announced that they intend to withdraw from the Canadian market the way they did in Australia. They both, uh, Google and Facebook, said that we're taking a look and we'll work with the government on this stuff. So it looks as though... Something like it, maybe modified or adjusted, will make it through the process. So which news organizations get covered? One of the biggest problems identified in the, the Australian measure was that it seemed to be aimed to help out Murdoch's papers and just about no one else. In this case, they adopted a definition of who's going to be able to benefit from this law as the qualified Canadian journalism organizations, which is a pretty lenient measure. The organization has to employ just two journalists, it's got to have an arm's length editorial decision-making process, and it's got to produce original news. So it'll obviously cover the legacy media, but it'll cover some of the upstarts what, uh, what as is well. Arm's so length, what is arm's length editorial? Uh, I, I, uh, think, I think what, what, what they're getting at is it can't be you know something where a company sets up Oh, its division. own, and, and basically says, yeah. "I'm going to cover McDonald's all across Canada. Uh, right. Every story yeah. about McDonald's that needs to be covered." Yeah, right. So you know, th there's some limitations. There are no transparency measures. You know, so the deals can remain secret. And some people are saying that is a defect that should be fixed, and it might uh, get adjusted in terms of the process of marking up the bill. But the Canadians are responding to you know some of the same problems that we've seen in the United States. They say 450 news outlets have closed in Canada since 2008, and this is clearly a measure to try to stop the, the hemorrhaging. Uh, I'm not sure it's, it's enough to fix the problem. You're going to have to have some other model for news production, and, and this isn't it. But it, it may be a step in the right direction to prevent things from, from getting worse. I don't know. You know, the money is coming from Google, and Google can find ways to get benefits from providing that money. To say we've saved independent journalism by putting it on the dole is, it, 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 you're kidding yourself. Google will find a way to extract value, maybe not completely, but it'll be able to say, you know, we just don't like what you're saying, so we're going to pay you less. And we like what he says, and we're going to pay him more. Right. Uh, it's, it's less than perfect. There's no question. But it's a step. And, and I think something else is going to have to be done as well, because the business model here is just broken. And there's no sense. You're right. You just can't just tap into the, the, the deep revenues of, of Facebook and, and Google to try to save news. They got to have some other model for generating revenue to pay for news production. But this is just an interim measure. It's not the fix.
Yeah. And this, it's sort of, it isn't quite the same, but it reminds me, and it comes from the same people who gave us the rules about how you had to have Canadian content on TV. You know, uh, 25% of your content had to be about Canada, filmed in Canada. And, you know, it was, you know, it had to be Canadian Drek instead of the more popular Drek that you got out of Hollywood. And it was just sort of an insult to the intelligence of viewers. Uh, and uh, this, I suspect, is going to end up with all kinds of uh, very similar bureaucratic and policy problems. But, you know, they, Google can't say that. Facebook can't say that because they can't say anything. Yeah. As they say, they're being good citizens and they're saying, we'll talk to you about this and so on. The days where they say, you know, we're Google and Facebook. If you don't like us, we'll leave. I think that's over. Yeah, but it is interesting. The more traffic they send to these uh, to the Toronto Globe and Mail, the more they're supposed to be paying them. So there really is an incentive to make sure that people get a, an opportunity to click on many other links with people for whom we pay less for the link. Yeah, it's. It, it, I mean, the, the, how much the smaller guys actually get out of this is a real question. Because, I mean, these deals are supposed to make business sense. And so the smaller guys are going to get a whole lot less than the bigger guys do. So even though it's an attempt not to pump up the legacy media relative to the new guys, because it's built on these market criteria, it's going to wind up doing that. So Google also exercising its market power, maybe less controversially, to say the apps that collect massive amounts of information, and most famously, there was a scandal saying that Muslim prayer apps were collecting all kinds of detailed information about location and phone number and the like. Uh, Google has said, you can't do that anymore. You cannot use the APK that collects a lot of that data. Nick, it was your institution that actually dug deep into the apps, right? Specifically, Serge Egelman and his colleagues at the startup he's running. He's been doing a lot of work in trying to discover what apps do. And he discovered in particular a really suspicious development kit because it wasn't just getting location data and the like when you request it, but was doing all sorts of other sneaky things in order to get a huge amount of data. And so it was like doing things that you were specifically not supposed to do in order to do data collection. And this particular SDK, not only was it doing suspicious things, it was a strange corporate shell ownership in Panama that may be related to a defense contractor, we don't know, got into a bunch of Muslim prayer apps and other sources, and basically Google blocked the SDK for being deliberately obfuscating the rules. So it went out of its way to hide the data that it was sending over the network by adding in layers of encryption with hard-coded keys specifically designed to mess up analyses that say, hey, what is this app trying to track? So, and if you're looking for a unified field conspiracy theory, I will only point out that the Durham investigation looking into the claims of spying on the Trump campaign, oh. uh, one, one of the principals in that investigation seems to have an interest in one of the companies that your 
colleagues identified as connected to this. So this is either a really wide-ranging conspiracy or a remarkable coincidence. More on that, I'm sure, when the reporters that listen to this decide to dig into it. All right, Mark, South Korea is regulating Google. This time they said, they've said for a while that the 30% guaranteed cut that the app stores take is not acceptable, that the people have got to be able to ask for payment without paying off the full 30% to Google. And Google had said, well, yeah, okay, sometimes, but we're not just going to let you link out to somebody and pay them in a, a link we don't get to see. And it looks like the South Koreans are going to say, no, you can't do that, which is a big deal because, of course, Android is probably more popular in South Korea than in any other country yeah. in the world. And it's super popular there. That's absolutely right. And as you point out, the, the law really is aimed at this 30% fee that uh, both Google and, and Apple levy on the app developers. But the, the way it, it operates is to say, You've got to allow the app developers to use a different payment system than the ones that are owned by Google. Now, that law took, you know, it, it was passed last September and, and it, it just, you know, is, is going into effect now because the regulator is just beginning to finalize the enforcement details. And one of the things that Google wanted to do, as you suggest, is to play a little game without linking where the app developer doesn't have an, a sort of an in-app payment system. It has a link that goes to a separate website, and you go to the separate website totally outside of uh, the purview of Google, and that's where you make the deal. And Google said, you know, if you do that well, we're not going to let you update your apps. And, and maybe starting in June 1st, we won't even allow you to be in the Google Play Store. And the regulator took a look at that and said, yeah, I, I know the law doesn't really explicitly cover outlinking, but it does say that you can't force the app developers to use your own payment system by making it too difficult or inconvenient to access or use alternatives. And they said by blocking uh, outlinking, you were in effect making it too difficult or inconvenient to use alternatives. So it said you can't do that. And it's got the mechanism to enforce that. If Google goes ahead with it, then the Korean Communications Commission, which is the media regulator enforcing it, they, they can do an investigation and they can ultimately go to court. And it's like two two percent fine, two percent of your global revenue, two, right? Two, no, of the just the South Korea revenue, but that's oh. still that's enough to you know create compliance. Now the interesting thing is that Google is also doing something else that we've heard about before. In the case where you do use an in-app payment system that's handled by a third party. Google said that we're going we're gonna to still charge you a, a separate fee, and that separate fee is going to be four percentage points less than what we would have charged you if you'd used our own in-app, uh, in, in our own payment system. So this is, this uh, is very similar to what uh, Apple did. I thought Apple did it first. They said... Uh, Apple did it first, <laughs> yeah. um, and, and Google apparently is trying to do the same thing in South Korea. So that would mean, you know, if you use an alternative payment system, in-app payment system, they'll charge you not 30%, they'll charge you 26%. Right. Um, and then, and so yeah, the remaining 3% will be charged by Visa or MasterCard. Oh, yeah, exactly right. And so there's no difference to the app developer. And as you point out, the Netherlands regulator has already tried to get Apple to stop doing exactly that same sort of thing. Apple was saying, okay, you can use an alternative payment system, but if you do, we'll charge you a, a fee of 
uh, of your revenue. And every week for the last you know six weeks, they've been charging Apple five million dollars a week to fix the problem. It'll wind up going to court in the Netherlands. But in, in South Korea, they haven't taken action yet against that. So we'll see if that takes place in the but, next but month given, or so. Given one that South Korea is where Samsung, the most famous Android phone maker, mm-hmm. resides, and that the usual ability to influence decision makers that Apple has by squeezing all of its very wealthy adopters is lower there because of its lower market share. I assume that the regulators in South Korea are going to hit Apple very hard on both of these and make it very hard, harder than the Dutch can make it for them to continue that. Just to be clear, we don't know what Apple's doing in South Korea. This is all what Google is up to. Right. And Google seems to be imitating Apple's behavior in the Netherlands in South Korea. I mean, look, there's a larger message here, which is that if you're going to do something to fight the App Store fees, it's going to involve some pretty heavy supervisory regulation. This is not something where you can pass a law, you know, and think it's going to be. So you're going to need a, a pretty savvy and detailed regulator to make this stuff work. Well, everybody wants to be the detailed regulator, the savvy, they, you know, they can take it or leave it. But yeah, I think this, this is just part of the tech clash and a particularly enthusiastic part because 30% just seems high to most everybody. And so nobody's really going to fuss on the exercise of regulatory authority to bring that down to something closer to not 10% or 5%. Yeah, but it, it is going to wind up looking a whole lot like price regulation at the end of the day. And, and that's not something that people thought they were getting into when they started down this road. Yeah, that's probably right. The unanticipated consequences of deciding that all these gatekeepers need to be regulated uh, are we're going to be with us at least until the year 2050 as we try to figure out which of those regulations are worth having and which are not. And as with any regulation, they're going to, it's going to cement the incumbents. There'll never be another app store that can succeed. And we're going to live with the existing duopoly for the rest of our natural days. But it may be a regulated duopoly, right? Yeah. Right. It, well, a nudged and shivied, but they'll build an ecosystem of people who are dependent on their position in the regulated uh, industry uh, so that it won't be just Google objecting to people who want to dismantle it. It'll be all of the other dependents who have built their uh, capabilities, just like the Canadian small press will build its capabilities around getting Google money. And then they will be lobbyists for keeping Google as a dominant player. It's a recipe for a sort of gradual Sovietization of the economy, unfortunately. My my goodness, the the Soviets are back with us again. Well, Uh, or a stagflation kind of thing where everybody, suddenly you can't break up and have competition because government and the dominant uh, players and all of the dependencies are so strong that politically you just cannot break free of it. That's my suspicion about where we're headed. And then the dominant players like Google and Apple and the other major players buy off their the government by playing politics kind of up to a point. And I think we're seeing that already. We'll come back to that. The Rupert Murdochization of the internet is has begun, and we're going to see plenty of it. But first, let's talk a little bit about another, you know, 
I have to say, Nick, you have so many people you love to hate that I just can't keep the, the <laughs> list in my head. But this is certainly one of them. Israeli surveillance software. The EU was targeted. EU officials in the Justice Department, the, the Justice Ministry, were or Justice DG were targeted by a tool called forced entry. I wasn't sure. NSO makes it. And then there's another company that I hadn't heard of that also makes it. So Apple disclosed this. Did they disclose who they thought had developed the tool? The other company, as far as I know, developed a very similar exploit, but it wasn't the same exploit. This okay. is almost certainly NSO Group. Note that NSO Group does count among its customers Poland, which just got caught targeting local journalists, if I yep. recall, and Hungary, led by that oh-so-paragon of democratic virtue, Viktor Orban. And so in terms of suspects, there's Let's face it, EU countries are going to spy on the EU government uh, all the all I the assume time. they so, all do. I, I assume anybody yeah. with an espionage service who worries about how the EU deliberations are going to turn out has some kind of intelligence collection aimed at the EU and probably aimed at each other. The, the, you know, the French, when the, the Brits were part of what? the EU, the, the French <laughs> and the Brits were cheerfully spying on each other. <laughs> France, we don't spy. It's sparkling espionage. <laughs> right. <laughs> so what is the takeaway from this? If somebody's using this. The EU is not going to investigate its own member states, so they have to investigate NSO and the other company. NSO is like, oh, no, our software can't be used for that. Honest. That's right. They were they were pretty. Um, they were very unequivocal in saying no. This was not an authorized use of our software. That does not necessarily mean it wasn't their software, but it was not an authorized. Or use. that they didn't actually know about it anyway. Given there's probably a fair bit of third party collection going to Unit eighty two hundred in this business, but. The other thing is, is hopefully NSO Group is on the trajectory that Finn Fisher's on. So the well, late Finn Fisher has, has, has come to the end of this trajectory. They are completely bankrupt. They are insolvent. And, and interestingly, this is the first time I'd ever seen a really tough export control investigation by the German authorities. They usually are notorious for you know, being happy to see German business succeed, even if it isn't quite in consonant with the Vassanar uh, arrangements. In this case, well, that's because, they seized everything. Yeah, well, that's because Finn Fisher and Gamma Group were the pioneers of the business of sell to shady Middle Eastern countries and pretend you're in the Werner von Braun School of Rocketry. Once the rockets are up, who cares where they come down? That's not my department, says Werner von Braun. And, and basically, they got hammered really hard a few years ago by being used to hack targets like Amit Mansoor. And then NSO basically has stepped into that breach. And we'll see if they're able to maintain the business of selling to autocrats that Finn Fisher basically died out of. Oh, don't, isn't the logical end game here that the Chinese and the Russians take this business over? The only reason that that is a problem for authoritarian governments is they're afraid that the Chinese and Russians are more effective at using these tools to spy on them than the, the folks they would be buying from in the West.
Yeah, the uh, second and third party collection hazard of going with uh, China or Russia is off the scale. You'd much rather have it be Israel, which is at least a little bit subtle. Well, and, and all, only cares, Israel, it, it only cares about certain parts of the world. <laughs> It only cares about certain parts of the world, and they're a little bit more subtle. Like, right. they have their H-bomb, they just don't bother to test it and show it off. Right. Okay. So, Mordecaization, you knew we were going to talk about this. Elon Musk shows up with 9.2% of, of Twitter's stock, <laughs> uh, uh, and there's a brief flurry in which Twitter thinks, oh, we can domesticate this beast. <laughs> we'll put him on the board and then he'll be stuck with all the fiduciary rules. Uh, not surprisingly, I, I expected that to end in tears, but I did not expect it to end in tears quite so quickly. <laughs> Uh, yes, the Twitter hypothesis was, hey, better have him inside the tent urinating out rather than outside the tent urinating in. Unfortunately, he turns out to be incontinent to go with his kind of toddlerish attitude. The only real question is why the deal fell apart. So it could have fallen apart because part of the deal basically prohibited Musk from doing a hostile takeover. Part of the deal or part of the details are this whole fiduciary duty doesn't really work well with Musk's shit posting because just yesterday he said Twitter a survey should we turn our the HQ into a homeless shelter because Twitter actually has usable work from home policies. Or no, what he uh, said was nobody shows up anyway. <laughs> yeah. Or should they drop the W from the name because that's his level of uh, intellectual discourse? All right. Or the convenient detail that he accidentally filed the wrong SEC forms accidentally 14 days late in a way that accidentally allowed the serial security fraudster to get an extra, save $150 million on his buy a seat on the board scheme. Probably a little column A, a little column B, a little column C. So this is obviously just a side project for him. He could buy Twitter pretty, you know, pretty easily. He could certainly come to control it so without an enormous outlay given his resources. And I think that's probably what's going. He's a user and he's kind of unhappy with their policies and he's more vocal about it than many folks. And I think he's basically doing this because he's mad at Twitter, and Twitter is a lot cheaper than anybody else he could be mad at about these issues. I'm guessing that sooner or later, there was this, and Mark way in here, there was a story that from Axios. I, I did not think it was a brilliant story, but they were making the point that the internet is dividing along party lines. It's not yet, but there's a lot of conservative enthusiasm for building or buying a, a capability to uh, compete with the, the left in Silicon Valley. And their best hope is that Elon Musk uh, ends up controlling Twitter and setting a very different policy that people will be half forced to defend by saying, well, of course, it's just private industry. So that's just Twitter expressing its own free speech views. We can't regulate that at all. I, I don't ever actually expect to hear them say that. Uh, but of course, uh, uh, of course, we know Musk's free speech view is I'll be instantly booted for calling him 
El- Melon Musk or something like that. And I'll be more of, productive for it. <laughs> uh, Be- Beavis and Butthead do free speech is kind of what we're going to get. Uh, he's Look, he's smarter than that. But I, I no, think that not. is... It. Well... Okay. Call me when you have $250 billion and I'll, I'll He's buy luckier. Unfortunately, I didn't have parents and uh, apartheid South African emerald mines, I believe. So isn't there something about that? Yes. Um, he's, but really, let's actually pour one out for him. It's really not every day that the founder of the company is denied a board seat. Yeah. Yeah. So I think he or somebody is going to end up with one of these companies, is my guess. The other possibility is that, you know, Mark Zuckerberg decides that maybe he isn't a lefty and that there's more to be gained by playing Rupert Murdoch than by trying to appease the left, because he's never Mm going to appease them. Mark, uh, your thoughts? Are we stuck with the political monoculture that is Silicon Valley today? Well, you know, the, 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 the story in Axios, there's only one piece of hard news in it. It's got a big headline as if there's a big development. But the only thing they pointed out was that the, the Daily Wire, which is this conservative digital media company, is going to be investing $100 million over the next three years in kids' enter- entertainment. And that doesn't strike me as being a momentous development uh, that suggests we're splintering along partisan lines. It strikes me that, you know, your way in which the the more conservative views would be present on social media would not be through, you know, founding new companies, but by, by taking over existing ones. I mean, you look at, at what's out there. I mean, the, the Trump's social network is struggling, even though it's got a billion dollars to bankroll it. You know, the rumble that uh, Peter Thiel is backing doesn't seem to be getting off to a big start. The the, the, the parlor, you know, has, has been around for a while, funded by Rebecca Mercer, but, you know, it's not really flourishing. Well, they lack that outrage feedback loop that part of the reason why Facebook and Twitter are successful for the conservatives, and they're really successful for the conservatives, is they can create a outrage feedback cycle of... Lauren Boebert or whatever goes on about uh, pedophiles when, look at her husband. What was he charged for? Remember Jim Jordan? That's G-Y-M. And create these outrage cycles that create a feedback loop and get a lot of attention on both sides. When you have the monoculture media like Trump's derp social, you don't get those feedback loops. And so as a consequence, they become ghost towns because really so much of the conservative movement these days is feed on liberal tears and let's face it it's fun to feed on the tears of the bro flakes too yeah there you go there's there's another issue here that and and axios mentions it it may be going on that you know um, they think that this partisan move on the internet is part of a different kind of business model that the online platforms are not aiming anymore they say to serve a huge mass audience, that they want to shift towards you know a much more niche audience and deal with paying customers. And the model there is really what happened with cable, where you didn't need to be a broadcaster trying to get everybody in under the tent. You just find your own niche audience, and you can still make a ton of money. They think that's is what's going to happen with social media. And and if that happens, then they think a partisan social media is a real possibility. Maybe, but my, you know, my sense is that y- y- you don't really want to have 
partisan social media, what you want is media that provides you with entertainment, something that's interesting that's not political. And if you do that, then you can add the politics on top of that. I mean, it's very much the way people consumed newspapers in the old days. You didn't buy the newspaper for its partisan point of view. You bought it for its sports and entertainment news and the comics and the crossword puzzle, and you pick up the news along the way. So these partisan outlets, I think, are not really going to be a success. You need to have a general purpose operation, and the politics comes along. I, I, I think the network effects are just unbeatable. But the tech clash and the regulations that come with it and all of the discretionary calls that are built into being a regulator of gatekeeping uh, uh, technologies means that whoever runs the government has to be happy with you or at least not unhappy with you, which means that if you had a competent conservative government, and, and we haven't had one in the age of Twitter, they will find ways to extract concessions from the platforms that are designed to ensure that the coverage that they want is included in the network effects. And that means that you're going to have network effects companies, big gatekeeping companies, that are dancing to the government's tune, you know, subtly, not trying to get ca- trying not to get caught, but designed to send signals to whoever is in power that uh, they have nothing to fear from the tech platforms. And that hasn't happened yet, but it's going to happen. We'll see. <laughs> All right. Uh, <clears throat> well, it's well advanced in China, and we thought Tech Clash was over in China. I think I, I declared it dead. But the, the Cyberspace Authority had just announced it's going to go out and audit ByteDance and Tencent to make sure that their <clears throat> algorithms are not abusive. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. You think this is that the, the, the Cyberspace Authority didn't get the memo, uh, or is it going to be a patty cake audit? It's, it's not clear. I remember what this is. This is going back to the algorithmic amplification law that they passed back in August. And they're really just getting around to implementing that. And, and remember what that was all about. It was, you know, tell the companies that they have to disclose the what their algorithms are all about and provide sort of a convenient option for turning off the algorithm. And, you know, ByteDance and Tencent have done that. They provided... Uh, a way to opt out of recommendations on their apps. And this is very similar to what's going on in the United States and Europe. I mean, we're thinking here that algorithms are sort of the problem and that we want to give people a chance to have a neutral feed, like reverse chronological order. And the thinking here is that if algorithms don't amplify content, they can't amplify harmful content. You know, they can't uh, amplify any content, even the useful stuff. So I think that's uh, imitating very much what... um, we're doing here. I'm not sure it's going to do much good as a consumer protection thing. I think a neutral feed might actually not be a bad thing. But the real question that you're asking is, why is China doing this? Didn't they get the memo that they're not supposed to be being so hard on these companies? I mean, after all, the Chinese tech stocks have lost a trillion dollars in market value in the last couple of years. Now, look, it may be that the, the Cyberspace Administration is just on automatic pilot, and they still think the idea is to be concerned about online abuse and mistreatment of consumers, and and maybe there's something to that. But some people think that they've miscalculated and that they're cracking down too hard. I've got another idea that comes from a, a commentator like Kendra Schaefer. She's over at Trivium, uh-huh. and, and she thinks that the crackdown is aimed at moving investment and innovation to areas of strategic importance. 
The, right. the regulators are saying instead of trying to disrupt, you know, the laundry industry or addicting teenagers with live streaming services, the innovators should be focusing on developing cutting edge chips yes. and applying AI to industrial processes. You know, and it's as if they're saying you're involved in this trivial stuff. Go do something important. And if you do, not only will we leave you alone, we'll give you subsidies and low interest loans and all the rest. That was clearly the message when the tech lash was at its uh, high point in China, maybe uh, six months or a year ago, that they ought to, you ought to make hard stuff. You know, we want to see stuff that our military yeah. can use, not, you know, really cool dances. So I, I think that's probably part of what's going on here. But I can't help thinking that this is also, they're doing this for the same reason that Shanghai is locking people up uh, to stop uh, Omicron from spreading. They've never been told to cool it. And so they are going to keep enforcing the rules that they got from the center without nuance, because nuance is hard. And, uh, you know, if you keep doing what you were told, you can't be criticized. If you try to uh, do nuance and you get too far out ahead of the central government, uh, you're going to be sorry. Maybe. We'll we'll see what happens with this actual enforcement mechanism. I mean, it may be that it is for show, that they'll just, you know, look over their shoulder lightly and say, hey, you're doing fine, don't worry about it. But it may be something where they'll continue this effort to try to move people into stuff that's maybe more useful for industrial processes or for developing the, the latest sort of chips. Okay. So uh, just a few quick hits. The State Department has launched at last or again or whatever a a cyber bureau. This has been an idea that's been around and has been tried. Not unsuccessfully, it's just never quite. it It was not the flavor of the month for a while in the Trump administration. So progress toward it uh, stalled. And then when finally the Trump administration embraced it, the Democrats were in charge in the Hill and they didn't like the specifics. So we're finally getting a cyber bureau because everybody's aligned at last. We'll see how much difference it makes. It's a good idea on the whole, but probably not going to change the world. And And if they want a deputy secretary of shitposting, uh, I'll be available. I'm sorry, but uh, Elon's got that job. (laughs) And finally, last thing, Europe, after all the lectures it's been giving us on privacy and the evils of large government surveillance, is... uh, putting together the biggest international facial recognition system designed specifically to find criminal suspects off of, you know, uh, the the video of the crime. And it f- essentially getting every government in Europe to start sharing face recognition data. Controversial, but I suspect not going to get stopped. I am pleased because when I was at DHS, we signed up many of the European countries, eventually by threatening visa waiver revocation, all of the Europeans, I believe, to share their biometric criminal data. So after Europe has built this, look for the U.S. to show up and say, yeah, so great little system you got here. Just plug us right in here. So it's going to be for all of the effort to make facial recognition toxic. I think Europe's probably going to put the nail in that particular coffin. And that is it. Mark and Nick, thanks for joining us. Public service announcement. If you know somebody in the audience, if you know somebody who'd like to work here at the podcast, uh, we're 
gonna hire somebody part-time. If you know somebody who wants to do both sound engineering and production and a little bit of cyber law policy, send the CV to cyberlawpodcast at steptoe.com. Thanks to Weissman Sound Design for our music. This has been episode 402 of the Cyber Law Podcast, brought to you by Steptoe and Johnson. Mm-hmm.